Welcome to episode 81 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today I'm speaking with Graham and Glenis Romanes. This is the last of our interviews recorded at the Australasian Aid Conference hosted by the Development Policy Centre in partnership with the Asia Foundation back in February. Through their long careers and through their lives, both separately and as a couple, Graham and Glennis have been trailblazers in a range of areas, from gender equity to disaster response to Indigenous programming. In the 70s, Graham became famous for being a stay-at-home dad, a rare species even today but practically unheard of then. In the 80s, the couple took the equally radical step of job-sharing the role of Victorian State Secretary of Oxfam Australia. In the early 80s, Graham led Oxfam's response to the famine in the Horn of Africa, a pivotal event for Australia's development NGOs. He again became a media figure, this time exposing the fact that the Ethiopian famine was not simply a natural disaster, but the outcome of a tyrannical regime. His 13-week journey by vehicle and foot from Sudan to Tigray was life-threatening but also life-changing. Ever since, Graham has worked in support of the people of Ethiopia, particularly through funding the digging of wells. Thanks to Graham's work, more than half of the 4 million rural population of Tigray is now in walking distance of a well. Glenys's focus was on the Pacific and Indigenous Australians. Oxfam was the first Australian development NGO to program domestically, and Glenys oversaw the transition of their Indigenous programs into Indigenous hands. And if you've worked in the Pacific, you will have heard of one small bag, the Nivanuatu Theatre Group. It received its first funding from Oxfam Australia under Glenys's management. Eventually, Graham and Glenys left Oxfam. In 1997, Graham became the Honorary Consul for Ethiopia, a position he held until 2014. Glenys commenced a career in Victorian local and state politics, which saw her serve as the Mayor of Brunswick and in the Victorian Upper House. They both remain active to this day through a range of numerous local, statewide and international engagements. In this interview, Graham and Glennis reflect on some of their achievements and the lessons that they've learnt. Theirs is an inspirational and instructive story that we should both celebrate and learn from, not only in our work, but in terms of our lives and aspirations. Graham and Glennis, along with Mark Sullivan and Sally Lloyd, were all featured in the Aid Profile series as part of their nomination for a Mitchell Humanitarian Award. We've also featured Mark and Sally on Goodwill Hunters, and you can find links to their episodes in the show notes. If you know of anyone who has made an outstanding contribution to the development sector with an Australian angle, nominate them for the annual Mitchell Humanitarian Award by writing to devpolicy at anu.edu.au and check out the Aid Profile website at devpolicy.org forward slash aid profiles. Enjoy the episode and stay tuned for a special episode next week on the new aid strategy just announced by the government. Graham and Glennis, thanks for speaking with me. We're at the Australasian Aid Conference and you have both been jointly nominated for a Mitchell Humanitarian Award for your contribution to the humanitarian sector. So a big congratulations to you both. You've both been lifelong supporters of Oxfam since your university days through to a period of employment with Oxfam and continuing today. So to begin, what do you credit your long-term commitment to development to? Partly came out of uh, our thinking, social development uh, thinking that happened 
from our experiences, early experiences in the Methodist Church in many respects. The, the issue of justice and international justice was quite, um, quite to the fore, the sorts of groups that we were involved with within the church. And that, that led to our wanting to be involved in the international development sphere and international relations in some way. And Oxfam really seemed to be the perfect body to move to because it, it at the time, was based in community groups uh, that were in suburbs where we lived. And so we joined a local community at a broad group, uh, which ultimately community at a broad becoming Oxfam, um, enabled us to be involved locally and to think globally. We were inspired by uh, D- David Scott and um, a- Adrian Webb from um, Community Aid Abroad because they were, uh, at the time, moving around communities in Melbourne and in Victoria uh, and and uh, telling stories about um, famine in India, which started Food for Peace, then Community Aid Abroad, and also then... Um, the work that Community Aid Abroad was doing in development in India in particular and other Southeast Asian areas. Um, And they were forming local Community Aid Abroad groups which would support that work in various countries. And that was uh, a very inspiring period. And we uh, separately joined up the Coburg and Northern Community Aid Abroad group and we've been members of Community Aid Abroad groups and involved in uh, CAA Oxfam ever since. So your involvement with Oxfam began in the 1960s when it was Community Aid Abroad. What was it like to be involved in an international development organisation back then? I think it gave us uh, quite a hands-on experience of, of what life in what we called the third world at that time was. Community Aid Abroad was quite trailblazing in that it was trying to create a, an opportunity for relationship between communities here in Australia and communities abroad. Now, that mightn't seem much today, given the way we travel, uh, but in fact, it was quite a new thing. And it was picking up on the idea of creating a, an ordinary person's Colombo plan which had been brought about uh, by the Australian government to enable the contact. Uh, and that, that was really very attractive to us. It enabled us to get uh, a close, much closer glimpse at what life was like somewhere else in the world and give us an opportunity to uh, find a way of being part of that involvement. Was there an Oxfam or a Community Aid Abroad Society at your university? We didn't have a... Community Aid Abroad Oxfam group at the time, but um, similar groups. I remember joining the very first amnesty group in Melbourne, which started at the University of Melbourne. I remember um, a visit from a a senior Tanzanian minister um, speaking and inspiring us to, you know, think about the big issues facing um, people in Africa uh, in the, uh, before and after independence. Um, and so it was, a, it was a time when things were opening up um, and, uh, and, and young people were encouraged, students were encouraged to travel. The AUS, Australian Uni- Union of Students, um, set up travel uh, study tours uh, for, to encourage students to explore the region around them. So it was at a time when uh, uh, communications were were evolving and uh, and increasing, and uh, we were we were pretty much 
in the middle of that, the anti-apartheid movement, um, other land rights movements and other uh, things like that that were beginning to happen. It was a pretty interesting decade, and of course, yeah. uh, for some of us who were about to be called up to go to Vietnam, uh, there was the whole conscription issue, and that, that certainly mobilised a lot of people at university, and concerned that uh, so many young people were being dragged off to Vietnam to fight a war that not all of us believed in. You would have seen a lot of changes in Oxfam since the 1960s, and there are more changes forecast for this year, not just for Oxfam, but more broadly for the international development sector. Can you comment on those changes in Oxfam and the evolution of the sector at large? Well, uh, when we were recruited on the staff of the Victorian Office of Community Aid Abroad and we took up the joint position as State Secretary, it was a time when uh, we were probably recruited for our passion and our, you know, our interest in community aid abroad as much as any uh, skills in management or um, uh, other other uh, in, um, organisational skills, although we, we were right into fundraising and, and local organisation. But these days, uh, it, it, it's a more professional outfit, <laughs> as most organi- aid organisations tend to be, and they operate on a scale much larger than the community aid abroad Oxfam that we joined uh, back in 1980. So a lot of things have changed. Um, The communication uh, and and social media and a whole range of ways of reaching out to people have meant uh, that the importance of local community aid abroad groups and mobilising at that local level has become less important uh, than than it, it was in our time. The other major change that's happened is that there was a, a project focus for Community Aid Abroad where basically it, it was an aid organisation looking to mobilise community support, financial community support for programs abroad. That idea uh, has, has given way to much more work in advocacy and campaigning, which has to be done in a different way. Uh, but I think uh, the downside of that for the organisation is that it's probably left a lot of people behind. Um, people who are simply looking for a way of engaging to give and belong uh, find it much harder these days, I think, at Oxfam because they're not exactly sure what sort of work um, Oxfam does abroad in a way that uh, they did know before we engage with a community in India or Africa or wherever, we don't do that these days in quite the same way. It probably has picked up a different constituency in the way it works, and those people who are looking to give money to get something done um, have probably gone to other places. Of course, we saw the development of World Vision, which did pick up a lot of those people who were thinking, if I give this much money, I can support a child. Now, we had to tackle that as as a as a difficult development concept at community aid abroad, and we and and within the agencies, of course, we had to think about um, what we did differently from one another, and uh, to what extent we were prepared to criticise one another's activities in terms of whether or not they were developmentally sound. We know that public donations to INGOs are at an all-time low, and giving to INGOs peaked in the early 90s and has been declining since then. 
So the sector is increasingly dependent on philanthropists and corporate donors, which does raise questions around the ongoing role of community mobilisation and local action. In your view, has the sector lost that grassroots community supporter base that it had in the 70s and 80s? I think we are. And I think I think it's because, in a way, the Oxfams of this world are making it quite difficult for community, ordinary community people to understand what they're giving to. So if we have a bushfire and we have bushfire relief program, people know they can give to a, an organisation that's going to do something about the bushfire. Um, but it's much, much more difficult in a development field. And I, and I do think that the, um, the NGOs have become captive, far too captive of government funds and have had to, as Glenn has said, professionalise themselves in a way in which they can go, go out and seek those funds. Because it does rely on pretty skilled information giving uh, to, to be, and it requires that to be able to get that sort of funds. But they do become quite dominant within an organisation. Oxfam set, tried to set limits on what it, on how much it would accept in terms of percentage from government, uh, which I think was a very fine thing. Fine because uh, it meant it wasn't totally dependent on government if government changed its mind about where it was going to put its money, uh, and they have very large slabs of money can come be turned on and turned off. Um, so I think that was a wise decision. Other organisations, I think, have become far too dependent. Oxfam is still doing very important work and uh, it, it has a great reputation for as an organisation and the international Oxfams working together have a wonderful reputation for moving into uh, situations, crisis situations and making a difference in areas of water and, and um, uh, food supplies and uh, infrastructure um, and as a community development focused organisation, it's still doing lots of excellent work, you know, across the world. The issue, I think, is communication, trying to sort of um, uh, interpret what gender empowerment and women's development means at a very local level and, and uh, enlisting the support of people to support that. Um, and so there's uh, the messaging is really important and the messaging has got to uh, touch people so that they continue to give and support that very important work. In 1980, you both started job sharing the role of Victorian State Secretary for Community Aid Abroad, now Oxfam Australia. Then, Graham, you moved on to work on the Ethiopian famine. That was a really pivotal period for the INGO sector in Australia, but one that a lot of us either don't remember or weren't alive for, like myself. Can you tell us about that time? I think it uh, the, the Ethiopian famine somehow took off as as a a major focus for the world. A bit like the bushfires, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, but it was a world focus. It had it had followed the crisis that had begun to mobilise the world uh, around Kampuchea uh, and the activities that gone on there, and Pol Pot's regime and so on, and breaking through that and realising how many people had suffered. Then we were hit in '84 with news which just happened to break because the BBC took it up and and that just began a ball rolling, Michael Burke's report on the famine in Ethiopia, which had been quite severe for some time, but his report picked up world interest in what was happening because it was such a graphic report. That helped communities mobilise. Uh, Bob Geldof picked it up uh, with his live aid concerts and uh, 
United States for Africa uh, artists picked it up with their singing and their concerts um, and suddenly young people became involved in in a whole new thinking about how we're going to we're going to help in in Ethiopia at Comindate Abroad obviously we were going to respond as well uh, and we had to think very hard about what the best way would be to respond to that crisis in Ethiopia our analysis at the time was that a major problem of the famine was the way in which the Ethiopian regime was using the famine to prosecute its war against the rebellion in the northern part of the country and we realised there were really two and a half million people at risk uh, because of that war being prosecuted against them and decided that we would have to work some way of, of going directly to support those people, which we did. And that was, that was quite unique. We were really almost the only agency in the world that decided that we would only work on one side of the war um, and, and try and, and help those people directly, which is quite difficult uh, to access the areas. Uh, it was a very important contribution to uh, saving, helping to save the lives of some two and a half million people. At that time, we were still um, uh, chairing the job as Victorian State Secretary, uh, but Graham went um, in, into the field, into Ethiopia, for some months at a time during at the end of 84 and during 1985 um, to um, help start uh, a water program. Um, in in uh, Tigray in northern Ethiopia, which continues to this day, but it also precipitated us moving from that shared position into full time positions for each of us. Um, uh, and Graham's area was um, was Africa, and uh, and mine was other parts of the world such as Central America, Pacific, and the Indigenous program in Australia. Graham, you took a thirteen week trip through Ethiopia during the famine and you were trying to work on development and relief aid in the midst of a war zone. What was that like and what did you see during that trip? I, I saw a lot of displaced, displacement of people. Uh, the people of Tigray who were receiving very little international assistance were being forced to, to move uh, and cross the border into Sudan to become refugees. Uh, the UN really didn't have any capacity to work with internally displaced people at the time. Uh, they could only work with refugees, so to, to begin to mobilise international support, the UN had to get those people out of Ethiopia into a neighbouring country, which is a pretty crazy scheme. Uh, uh, involved a lot of dislocation. Uh, so I saw all that movement of people, and I, we worked closely with a local organisation, the Relief Society of Tigray, that was using what little food aid it was able to muster from around the world to help those people move by setting up displaced people's camps along the way, along the trek out. At the same time, we were determined to try and institute some development program within Tigray, uh, long-term work. We decided to work in water. We thought, and thought it through very well, that uh, perhaps a drilling rig might be a great idea to, to, to bring in and begin water, village water supplies. The rig was seized by the Ethiopian regime when the, the ship that it was on went to the wrong port and uh, the government authorities saw it and seized it along with 3,000 tonnes of food aid which we had oh, no. uh, destined for Tigray. 
By that time, I was in the field, trudging through the countryside and realising that to put a drilling rig into a war zone like that would be very difficult with the Ethiopian Air Force flying around, bombing whatever it could. And we moved to look at a much more appropriate technology uh, and developed um, the idea in discussion with local, the local partner REST, uh, the Relief Society of Tigray, um, the idea of uh, a hand dug wells program, a program that would be less visible from the air for a start, but perhaps also much more appropriate technology for local people in that in that crisis war zone. And that that program uh, took some years of training and uh, working with locals uh, to get going to a real head of speed. So today, uh, rest have be become a major water supplier. Uh, all from the beginnings that we had with Community Aid Abroad uh, and have now instituted village water supplies for 2 million Tigrayans in northern Ethiopia. So it's a lovely it's quite legacy amazing. that's been left. And of course, we don't have the war any longer. So REST is also now able to begin a drilling program. And you've continued your involvement with Ethiopia ever since, including a long period as honorary consul. And today you still support Ethiopia through the digging of small-scale wells uh, via REST. So when you reflect back, what are your reflections on a, on a lifelong commitment to Ethiopia? Well, I guess it's a little bit random sometimes where we end up and, and what our interests are. And other people are totally involved in Fiji or Papua New Guinea. Um, mine, in this case, happened to be Ethiopia. I think it was because... Uh, the famine was there, I was sent there, I developed some incredibly wonderful relationships with, with local people. My first guide was a, a young guy in shorts and plastic sandals who, who quizzed me about Australia's role in the Pacific. We were in the bush. Why wasn't Australia a member of ASEAN? Um, what, did, what did Australian business, what were they doing in Fiji? And I thought, where did this guy get all this information from? And... Uh, Turned out he was there in the bush. They were avid listeners of the BBC World Service, and he picked it all up. Well, that guy, after the change of government, uh, when my friends came into power, um, became the foreign minister, and he he became uh, Ethiopia's longest staying foreign minister for 19 years. And uh, he he had he was the one who asked me to open a mission for them here in Australia and uh, to be their honorary consul general. So. It's those relationships, I think, that uh, have been incredibly important, but in some ways it just happened to be Ethiopia uh, and just happened to, to be some wonderful friends. And so today I'm, I'm at no longer Honorary Consul General, but very keen to keep the relationship up and we have uh, developed a, a trust, uh, well wishes. Uh, well wishes' task is to keep supporting uh, funding for REST and for its water program. That helps my relationship to, to have a relationship there and to get back to Ethiopia quite regularly to, to meet those friends again and uh, to see how we can continue to be involved and how we can also help people back here understand that there are ways in which they can be involved today in Ethiopia. As we know, of course, the Australian government's moved away from Africa and so we have to find more and more community ways uh, for the community to be involved in parts of the world other than the Pacific. 
That's an amazing story you told about the person you met in the bush who went on to become the foreign minister. It's funny, it makes the world feel like such a small place, I think. I can't count the number of times I've had taxi drivers in the Pacific who have been able to name every player on the Manly Seagulls NRL <laughs> team. And I probably couldn't even tell you one. But they just, you know, they were so connected in... Glennis, you also moved into a programming role with Community Aid Abroad or Oxfam in the 80s, but with more of a focus on uh, both domestic affairs and Central America, Pacific, the Bangladesh, uh, Bangladesh. And as you put it to me yesterday, it was a process of gradually working yourself out of a job. Yes, yeah, so they were small um, funding programs when, when I started to manage them at Community Aid Abroad. Um, and gradually we built them up and built up relationships in those parts of the world and uh, that meant someone else could be employed to manage those programs and coordinate activities there. Um, uh, And I, in the end, um, had one last task left, which was to coordinate the um, Indigenous funding program across Australia, which had started it at um, Community Aid Abroad in the 70s, with some projects like funding for the Aboriginal Legal Service or, and Health Service in Fitzroy and uh, small community, Aboriginal community schools in different parts of the country, small projects, but it had grown into largely um, an advocacy pro- program and capacity building program. And um, and uh, uh, and we appointed uh, Rose Murray as our first Aboriginal program coordinator, um, an Indigenous woman. Um, and... Uh, then I was able to move out of that that work. Um, so at, at that point, I left the organisation and, and started off in, in different directions. Glennis, you've been able to work across domestic and international issues in your career. What's that like to bridge the gap between working on issues at home and working on issues abroad? Well, there was another dimension to it, really. And, and uh, in 1991, I was elected to Brunswick City Council. So I, I took on another domestic role, which was uh, to be a, a local councillor um, and a mayor in, of Brunswick, the last mayor of Brunswick before Jeff Kennett uh, merged the councils and, and I got sacked, as it were. And so I was, in a sense, doing two jobs. I was at um, Community Aid Abroad, but I was also in my spare hours before work and after work and in the evenings attending meetings most days um, and focusing on the issues, various issues that were um, uh, concerns of of our local community. Um, And so that was... It was great to see the parallels, really, to be involved in in getting to know my own local community much better and the issues and the um, the problems that had to be solved at that level. And that that decision-making role was, was one that I enjoyed a lot. So there, so there, I had the two two roles running for a few years, um, wow. and, which is heavy, heavy weather. And the only reason I was able to survive all that for the 10 years I was in local government, because I, I then later went on to be elected to Moreland Council um, while I was working in the Commonwealth Ombudsman's office. Um, but Graham was my um, mainstay. He was home with the children running the household and I could go off to meetings whenever I needed to uh, in the full knowledge that uh, everything was secure and, and cared for at home. Graham, being a stay-at-home dad, 
must have been a pretty rare thing in the 70s. It was. Jan Harper, who was a sociologist at Melbourne Uni, wanted to write a story about Fathers at Home, <laughs> um, a book for her students as much as anything. And uh, she really found it very difficult to find six case studies uh, around the country. Um, she picked up a couple of real ones and had to or virtually invent some others. Um, so, it, yeah, it was a bit groundbreaking. And, and it was... Difficult at times, I used to take the kids to playgroup and as the only father there, uh, it was quite isolating. The other women were reluctant to ask me to come home for morning tea in case their husbands might think something else <laughs> or uh, they were... And also, women, uh, many women were quite defensive about the fact that my husband goes to work because he can earn a lot more money than I can. Uh, that's why I'm home looking after the kids. Well... That's okay, but uh, yeah. uh, you don't need to defend your position in that area. But let's let's think that there may be other ways of doing things. But it was quite quite a new thing, and um, but it's it, grown a lot since then. It has yeah. grown enormously. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. You also lived communally with your neighbours for quite a long time. What was that like? And can you tell me, did these things just happen by accident? Or when you got married, was it a deliberate decision to do life differently? Well, we'd, we'd come back from teaching in Zambia for two years and we bought a small uh, single-fronted terrace in North Carlton. And some friends of ours were looking to buy a place and the place next door to us came up for sale. So they bought that place and Graham knocked a whole in the middle, in the wall um, um, between the two dining rooms and we had one big house that we sort of shared. Um, Some private areas in the bedrooms at the front of each house but some areas we shared at the back. And so we were were together there for about uh, six and a half years. So uh, that that was a a, a desire to... um, Join, come together more with others, and to um, share families and um, and and need uh, babysitting and and cooking and learning from each other and um, and in in fact um, uh, we recently had another period when that same family came to live with us um, a couple of years ago. Um, because they were renovating and they were looking for somewhere to live. So we had another eight months living together and it was very good, you know, to be back <laughs> together again as a big family. Wow. Yeah, so um, we, we've had lots of experiences of people wanting to cooperate and do things together. Um, a food co- We're a part of a food co-op that's been going for about 40 years or more. We had share, rather than buying a second car at one point, we... Uh, had a shared car with another family, which we could use, book and use whenever we needed to. We're part of a, um, a, a community, a group of 12 families who share a holiday house. So we were always looking for uh, different ways of, of doing things which um, br- bring people together but minimise also uh, cost and, and, and um, investment. Communal lifestyles are not generally synonymous with Australia and other more developed countries in contrast to places like India where very communal lifestyles are more common. What was it about a communal lifestyle that stood out to you as as something that would bring more joy and more purpose than living more privately? I think we we saw that in our time in Zambia. Uh, And in fact, 
it was uh, that that time brought home to me a lot of what colonization had done in the African context. The church, I think, uh, preached the notion of individual salvation, not co not community salvation, but individual salvation. Every person looking after their own soul. That was a probably a pretty alien idea to, in the African context. Communities in Zambia had ways of looking after families if a key parent died, integrating the family back into the tribal group. That was really, that, that was not an idea that was encouraged by the church. I, had a, I, had, I personally had a great sense that David Livingstone had moved through Africa uh, converting people to Christianity. Cecil Rhodes had followed through mining the place uh, we had we'd introduced a whole new way of thinking about things in, in the African context, which broke down a lot of that communal thinking. And I suppose I personally came back to Australia thinking, no, there were some terrific things about the concept of community in Africa that we, that we need to bring back home. Uh, how do we share things in a way in which we don't have a total focus on the individual and the promotion of the individual? I think um, sharing has to be learned. You know, the experience of doing things together helps you learn about yourself and others and um, the limits, you know, to when do you want some more privacy. Um, but even uh, Graham and I um, had to learn to share the kitchen. You know, often uh, people in a partnership have a territory <laughs> that they... <laughs> you know, map out in a sense. Yeah. And at first I'd have to just walk away. You know, if he were in the kitchen cooking or doing things and it was messy, I'd just walk away, and which I still do today, you know, um, because if you share a space like that, then you've got to let the other person be themselves in it and not order it in the way you think it should be ordered. So it, it, there is a, there's a need, there's an imperative if you if you want to increase your... Um, sharing of resources, you've got to learn how to do it. Mm. So to close then, would learn to share be some parting relationship advice? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Respecting each other, yeah. And sharing, of course, means allowing the other person a degree of autonomy and, you know, to get on and do the things that they want to do so that you don't have to share everything together. You've got your... your um, lives together in your separate lives that the things you enjoy doing yeah i think there's an acceptance of changing together as well which is quite critical i think we've we've moved our thinking um a lot over the years and but we've tried to do it together and uh, accept that we can teach one another and that we can learn from one another and that we accept that learning together that's absolutely critical that's great advice thank you both so much for being on the show very yeah, welcome thank you That was Graham and Glenis Romanes on Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs>